0: Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufchuk, and welcome to Season 2. We are going to start off this season with a series of overnight call episodes where we talk about really common scenarios that come up overnight as residents and discuss how to deal with them. So this first episode is going to be on nausea and vomiting and the use of anti-emetic medications in pediatric patients. So let's start out with a scenario. Let's say you're on call for GenPeds. You're heading to the ER to see a new admission when your pager goes off. It's a nurse who is calling to tell you that your 8-year-old patient that you recently admitted for acute gastroenteritis is experiencing nausea and vomiting. The child received a dose of ondansetron three hours ago, but they're still symptomatic and they're still having nausea and vomiting. Is there anything else we can do for that patient? This is a scenario that I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we kind of go through both the pathophysiology of nausea and vomiting and then what we can do to manage nausea and vomiting in our population. There's a couple of different mechanisms that lead to nausea and vomiting. And the first one we'll be discussing is mechanical. We have mechanoreceptors in the gut that actually measure intestinal distension. So if you have your bowels being overly stretched, that would stimulate vagal afferent nerves, which work via serotonin receptors, specifically 5-HT3 and 5-HT4. So think about a child who has acute gastroenteritis or perhaps a child who has food poisoning. As that child has a lot of diarrhea and that diarrhea is causing bowel distension, The mechanoreceptors in your gut will be sending off signals via these serotonin receptors, and that would be going to your vomiting center in your brainstem and causing you to have an emetic response. So, the mechanical pathway is just one way that can lead to nausea and vomiting in a patient. Another way. Uh, which is fairly common, is toxin-mediated. So in this mechanism, we have chemicals in our blood that could be either um, products from medications or um, perhaps even something like a chemotherapy. And those chemicals in the blood, as they're traveling through your bloodstream, they wind up in the central nervous system And specifically, they encounter the chemoreceptor trigger zone, or the CTZ, and that's located in the fourth ventricle. It doesn't really have the blood-brain barrier that is present in the rest of your central nervous system, so it's a little bit more sensitive to toxins. So as those toxins and those chemicals in the blood encounter that area, they cause activation of dopamine receptors, which then cause signals to be sent to your vomiting center, which is in your brainstem using histamine and muscarinic receptors. So things like um, patients who are getting a lot of opioid medications, let's say for pain control, and they get a dose of morphine and then they're really nauseous, that is why those patients are nauseous. That's the mechanism. It's because those breakdown products from that drug or even the drug itself, just those that presence of those chemicals in the bloodstream is actually going through hitting the chemoreceptor trigger zone, and then inducing a nematic response. This is also the case with our patients who have been receiving chemotherapy. Those toxins um, will induce a nematic response in that same way. A third mechanism for nausea and vomiting is motion. So body motion can overly stimulate your vestibular system, which is located in your inner ear, And that, in turn, can set off muscarinic and histamine receptors, um, which triggers an emetic response in the same way. So basically, because of your inner ear and your vestibular system being overstimulated, it's sending those signals to the vomiting center in your brainstem and causing an emetic response. So this would be the mechanism for people who have Motion sickness. It's also hypothesized to be the mechanism of vomiting for people who have, like, abdominal migraine or cyclic vomiting syndrome. There is a thought that that has to do with your vestibular system because those patients do sometimes respond to anti muscarinic and antihistamine medications. A fourth and final mechanism for nausea is emotional. And this, of course, is a little bit less understood. But it is very well described that people who have a strong emotional response um, can feel nauseous and then can, of course, vomit as well. Okay, so that covers our mechanisms for nausea and vomiting. So we're going to go ahead and dive into the anti-emetic medications. Before we do that, I do want to just note that not all nausea and vomiting needs to be treated with an anti-emetic. So remember that nausea and vomiting in and of itself is your body's way of expelling toxins, right? If you have food poisoning, your body is trying to get that out. That is your body's way of compensating for that. So it doesn't always necessarily need to be treated. So the question becomes then, when do we treat nausea and vomiting? Anytime you have a patient who may have a better chance of maintaining their PO intake and staying hydrated and thus avoiding a hospital admission, I think that is a reasonable choice to move forward and treat that patient because ultimately our goal is to make our patients feel better and also we would love to keep people out of the hospital um, and keep them in their homes where they also want to be. So just kind of keep that in mind as we go through these uh, medications that we don't always have to necessarily use them. Okay, so without further ado, let's start talking about our anti-emetic medications. As we go through these, I wanted to kind of point out that I've placed them in sort of buckets. Um, and those buckets are related to the pathophysiology and the mechanisms of nausea that we had just discussed. So we have sort of four broad buckets. One is the serotonin receptor blockers, two is the dopamine receptor blockers, three is the antihistamines, and then four is anti-muscarinic medications. Of course, I've done this because those are the four mechanisms um, of nausea and vomiting. And so I just think it's kind of useful to use your knowledge of the body and the knowledge of your pharmacology and kind of have those go hand in hand. So without further ado, let's start off by talking about Pediatrics' most well-loved anti-emetic which of course is ondansetron or Zofran. In our clinical scenario, our patient has already gotten Zofran, and I think that that really speaks to how popular this medication has become. Ondansetron is a serotonin receptor blocker, and it has kind of a sister medication that is really mostly used in chemotherapy patients, and it's Granisetron, which goes by the brand name of chitril. So, these serotonin receptor blockers are specifically 5-HT3 receptor blockers. And they came out in the 90s. And since that time, they've really gained a lot of popularity because they're relatively safe, they're pretty well tolerated, and they have a pretty good side effect profile. So, all around, these are pretty good medications. Again, they work by inhibiting serotonin binding to receptors. And so this is a really good medication for people who have that uh, mechanical mechanism of nausea and vomiting in the gut. So think about kids who have like food poisoning or acute gastroenteritis. Um, But of course, it's used more broadly than that. We use it all the time for um, just general nausea and vomiting for a variety of reasons. The serotonin receptor blockers are also one of the more well-studied medications within the pediatric population. Specifically, in acute gastroenteritis, Zofran has been studied, and there is evidence to suggest that one dose of Zofran given in the ED in patients who come in with vomiting or inability to tolerate PO um, can actually lead to a reduction in hospital admissions, and it's helpful for supporting oral rehydration therapy. Zofran can be given either IV or PO. The IV formulation is dosed at 0.15 milligrams per kilo per dose, and the oral formulation is dosed usually in either 2 milligrams, 4 milligrams, or 8 milligrams, depending on the patient's weight. So Zofran is usually given every 8 hours, and it's safe to give in patients who are over a month of age and over 8 kilos in weight. Of course, it does come with some side effects, the most prominent of which is prolonged QT. So make sure you keep this in mind if you have a really sick kid who's in the ICU who may be getting multiple QT prolonging medications. In the more general pediatric population, however, one QT prolonging medication is usually okay. Um, Additional side effects that you might see with Zofran or on Ondansetron is headache and stomach issues. It can cause both diarrhea and constipation, depending on the child. The next category of medications is dopamine receptor blockers. So this category includes things like prochlorperazine, which is compazine, promethazine, which is Finergan, and metaclopramide, which is Reglan. So all of these have some component of dopamine receptor blockade, and that's how they work to treat nausea. Remember that in your chemoreceptor trigger zone, your CTZ, activation of that is synonymous with activation of your dopamine receptors. And so if you kind of can block that cascade, then you can block the emetic response. So the first dopamine receptor blocker that we'll talk about is prochlorperazine or compazine. Now, this is a medication that we can give to pediatric patients who are above two years old, and over nine kilos. We can give it either orally or IV um, and typically we dose it every six to eight hours as needed for nausea and vomiting. The IV form is dosed at 0.1 mg per per dose and then the oral form ranges from two and a half milligrams to 10 milligrams depending on your age and your weight. One of the things that's important to know about compazine is that it carries a risk for extrapyramidal reactions. And really, this is a risk that you carry across all of the dopamine receptor blockers because if you block dopamine to a certain extent in your basal ganglia, you will end up with some motor consequences. So as far as extrapyramidal reactions with compazine, it can cause akesthesia, which is kind of like restlessness. And it can also cause drug-induced Parkinsonism due to the dopamine blockade. We treat the extrapyramidal reactions with benztropine because that will result in an increase in the dopamine and kind of reverse this adverse effect. The other risk that Compazine carries is a risk for dystonic reaction. And this dystonic reaction typically will occur within 72 hours of receiving this medication. So if you see a patient who was admitted, let's say, for migraine cocktail, and they were getting Compazine as a part of their migraine cocktail, and then they develop involuntary sustained or intermittent muscle spasms, so that can be one really, really tight muscle contraction, or it can be kind of like a jerking movement, um, you would think about a dystonic reaction in that patient. Dystonic reactions, they occur as a result of an imbalance between dopaminergic and cholinergic activity. So we would actually treat with a anticholinergic like diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. Um, That's the first line treatment. Or second line, we could give something like benztropine again, which would increase the dopamine and kind of reverse that effect. But the main thing really to remember about a dystonic reaction is that A, it can occur after giving something like compazine and then B, you treat it with Benadryl. The next dopamine receptor blocker that I want to talk about is promethazine, which goes by the brand name Phenergan. This is another medication that we use fairly frequently in pediatrics, mostly as a second line to Zofran. Promethazine, or Phenergan, is another medication that we only give to patients who are two years of age and older. And what's really important to know about this is that we never, ever use Phenergan in patients who are less than two years of age because it carries a risk of respiratory depression, which, as we all know, can have severe consequences. So this is 100% something that you need to remember from this episode. Never, ever give Phenergan to a child who is less than two years of age. In kids who are over two years of age, though, it is a really effective anti and it's fairly popular. We give Phenergan either in IV or oral forms. We dose it every four to six hours. And both the IV and the oral dosing is the same. It's about one per kilo per dose, with a max dose of 25 milligrams per dose. Now, because Phenergan or promethazine is a dopamine receptor blocker, it also carries a risk of dystonic reaction. And so don't forget that we treat dystonic reaction with diphenhydramine, or Benadryl. The third dopamine receptor blocker that I wanted to talk about is metaclopramide or Reglan. Now, unlike Phenergan and Compazine, Reglan or metaclopramide has a couple additional properties that makes it pretty special. So it, one, increases pressure at your lower esophageal sphincter, which, as you can imagine, if you make your lower esophageal sphincter tighter, it can decrease vomiting, right? Because you have to overcome that pressure in order to bring up emesis. And then two, it decreases your intestinal transit time. So you move food products through your GI tract quicker when you take metoclopramide or Reglam. And so because of those two unique characteristics, it does have a couple of additional indications and the primary one is it's used often as a last resort by pediatric GI doctors in kids who have pretty severe GERD. So that's a unique thing that metoclopramide can be used for. Now, you might be wondering, because we just talked about two other dopamine receptor blockers that we can't use until kids are two years of age or older, you might be wondering to yourself, can we even use metoclopramide in that patient population? in infants who have very severe GERD? And the answer is yes. Metaclopramide is safe to be used in infancy all the way through adulthood. Now, of course, metaclopramide or red gland also does carry some risk. Uh, The primary risk is that of tardive dyskinesia, which can present with a wide variety of symptoms, like lip smacking, dystonia, tremors, and we manage tardive dyskinesia by stopping the offending medication. I will say that out of the medications that we've discussed so far, Metaclopramide is something that we mostly use in older patients, and even though it's safe to use in infancy, we don't typically use it as an anti-emetic in infants. Um, if it's being given to an infant, in my experience, it's more likely being given for something like really severe GERD and like an ex who vomits all the time, uh, and not as often in someone who has nausea and vomiting related to, for example, acute gastroenteritis. Just like the other dopamine receptor blockers that we discussed, medical bromide can be given either orally or IV, and we generally dose it every six to eight hours. The next category of medications is antihistamines, and there are three main antihistamines that we will use to treat patients who have nausea and vomiting. One, of course, is diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl. And then the other two are more commonly used for things like motion sickness and that's meclizine which is antivert and dimenhydrinate which is dramamine. So starting with Benadryl or diphenhydramine. Diphenhydramine is a really great medication for lots of different things. Um, And it does work because it's a vestibular suppressant, an anticholinergic, and an antihistamine. Um, And that is how it kind of suppresses the emetic response in our patients. Diphenhydramine is a well-loved pediatric medication, and we can give it in infancy all the way up through adulthood. The main side effect is sedation. It's really a safe medication. And so I think that if you have a patient who is very, very little, less than two years of age, which cuts out a lot of your other anti-emetic options. This is a pretty safe one to try. The other two antihistamine medications are meclizine, or Antivert, and dimenhydrinate, which is Dramamine. Both of these medications we typically give to kids who are school age and older, And the main reasons that we would give it is for nausea and vomiting related to motion sickness. Remember, these are vestibular suppressants. So they're suppressing that response that comes from motion and overstimulation of your inner ear and your vestibular system um, that leads to stimulation of your vomiting center in your brainstem and then emesis. So these are oral medications. Um, We give them about every six hours. And they're pretty safe. The main side effect that we watch for with Dramamine and Antivert is sedation. The final antiemetic that I wanted to talk about is scopolamine, which is an anti-muscarinic agent. Now scopolamine can be given orally, but it has to be given very, very frequently. So in most scenarios, it's given via a patch that's applied, and then the medication is given transdermally in that fashion. Now, because scopolamine is an anti-muscarinic agent, it's really good for motion sickness. It's also really good for post-op nausea and vomiting. Um, And it's also used very frequently in kids who get chemotherapy because it sort of delivers a longer-lasting anti-emetic effect. One thing to know about scopolamine is that because it's an anti-muscarinic, the side effects that we're looking for are anti-muscarinic side effects. So those would be things like the classic mnemonic, hot as a hair, dry as a bone, red as a beet, things like that. But other than that, like I said, scopolamine is a really great agent for sort of long-lasting anti-emetic effects. And finally, one last medication I wanted to talk about that's a really great antiemetic is lorazepam or Ativan. Now, Ativan is a vestibular suppressant, and it's also a GABA agonist, which makes it kind of like a generalized CNS depressant. And we think that that is how it causes this sort of anti-emetic effect. Because of that vestibular suppression effect, Ativan is really good for motion-induced nausea. And because it's a generalized CNS depressant, it's also very good for nausea and vomiting that's caused by Anxiety or emotions. Of course, this has a potential to be abused, so it's not for long-term use. And because it's a generalized CNS depressant, one of the main side effects is sedation. But this is a medication that we do have available to us, and it's safe to use in infancy all the way up through adulthood. So we can give Ativan. We typically give it orally or IV, but most of the time, if we can, we'll give it orally. Um, And the dose for that is 0.05 milligrams per kilo per dose, with a max dose of 2 milligrams. Oftentimes, if patients are naive to benzos, I'll start with a lower dose, like a half milligram or one milligram, and then if they still have symptoms, go up from there. Um, Because this is a sedating medication, Um, I think it's important to kind of start small and then go up because you can always add more, but you can't peel it back once you've given it. So that pretty much covers our talk on anti-emetic medications in pediatrics. I do have one last thought, um, and that is that remember that our patients that we treat are pediatric patients. And oftentimes these kids are so small and even nonverbal as infants and toddlers then they can't adequately convey exactly how they're feeling. So sometimes they may um, kind of point to their stomach and you may have to infer that they are nauseous and treat them accordingly. And then other times they may tell you that they're nauseous when really what they're experiencing is some tummy pain or abdominal discomfort related to things like gastritis. So I think a really good adjunctive uh, therapeutic approach is to think about your patients who have nausea or who you suspect have nausea and treat them both with an antiemetic, but also keep medications like a PPI or an H1 blocker like famotidine kind of in your back pocket and use that as needed as well to sort of provide some additional relief. As always, thank you guys for listening to MD Notified and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.